So we've been talking about these parables of Jesus. We've been talking about them. And these parables, they're, they're powerful things. These parables of Jesus, they're stories that made sense to Jesus' audience, but yet a lot of what they taught didn't necessarily make sense to Jesus' hearers, not even to his disciples. And as we know, in the second half of his ministry, he almost exclusively used these parables to share who he was and what he had come to offer. The everyday events they talked about, the people comprehended them, they made sense, but the deeper spiritual truths that they were teaching, the people struggled to get them. So Jesus kept using these general ideas that everyone could understand. Last week, he introduced the idea of a king inviting everyone to a wedding for his son. And that story had all these makings of a, of a royal wedding, of a great presentation, and it ends with this curious account, if you heard last week, this curious story at the end of this man who came in after all those who invited had not shown up. This man, he tried to come into the party, but he didn't put on the party clothes, the robe that was offered to him. He didn't put that on. And that story ends with a reminder, even a caution for us, of what it requires of our hearts and our lives that we would put on the robes of righteousness offered by the king, offered by God. That's a spiritual analogy we in the church understood. And while it was an Old Testament analogy, the people heard it but they were struggling to understand. And Jesus, he kept telling these stories. And as he tried to explain why he was here now as the shadow of the cross was falling, he also wanted them to understand that this was not the end, but the beginning and that he was going to come again. So we find Jesus here on the Mount of Olives. Matthew 24 and 25 are what we call the Olivet Discourse, where Jesus is teaching all these things about not just the kingdom of righteousness, the kingdom of redemption he had brought, but that it was an eternal kingdom and it had a beginning and it had a, an earthly end and that would be when he came again, the second coming. And the people were trying to wrap their minds around. They thought when the Messiah came that maybe that was just it. And Jesus said, no, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come again. And he wants the world to know, not just about the here and now, but the, he wants them to look forward for what is yet to be when he comes again someday. This kingdom of heaven that he's going to bring in in power and majesty when the eternal kingdom of God, the new heavens and the new earth will begin. And that's what we wait for as Christians even today. So we're going to take time to consider this parable today, tucked in the middle of this teaching on the Mount of Olives, where Jesus reveals more about that eternal kingdom of redemption he has come to offer. And he tells this story, he tells this parable so that we would be ready. And so we need to understand that this parable is, it's a warning to us in a sense. It's, it's a warning that we would in our own lives be aware that we would see the signs of what happens when he comes again. It's a warning for us as we look at Matthew 25, 1 through 13. So let's read that now together. At that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the groom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. When the foolish took their lamps, they didn't take oil with them. But the wise ones took oil in their flasks with their lamps. When the groom was delayed, they all became drowsy and fell asleep. 
In the middle of the night, there was a shout. Here's the groom. Come out to meet him. Then all the virgins got up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish ones said to the wise ones, give us some of your oil because our lamps are going out. The wise ones answered, no, there won't be enough for us and you. Go instead to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. When they had gone to buy some, the groom arrived and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet and the door was shut. Later, the rest of the virgins also came and said, Master, Master, open up for us. He replied, Truly I tell you, I don't know you. Therefore, be alert, because you don't know either the day or the hour. This is God's holy word. And in it today, Jesus, he offers us a pretty interesting story. And as we'll see, this made sense to those hearing it that day, but to us, it might seem a little strange. We know that we have a, a wedding here going on. There, there are these, these virgins, these bridesmaids that are out as a part of this. And he wants to emphasize in this story to his followers this idea of being ready. And that's an encompassing idea. It's in our lives, our practices, our beliefs, our minds, our hearts. It's being ready in every way. If you were a Boy Scout or a Girl Scout, this idea and the Boy Scout motto, of course, is be prepared and this idea of being prepared is certainly on their hearts. And a lot of people, when they look at this, this story, they see it as just about the end when Jesus says, ah, they were too late, the door was shut, and then they weren't able, they weren't able to come in. And everyone wants to look at this as just a sign of those who will come into heaven and those who will not. And while that's certainly a good deal of what's being talked about here, it's more than that. So, in today's world, in this very hectic world of COVID-19 and murder hornets and, and all kinds of other crazy things that are going on, we might be tempted, and I see Christians today that are tempted to try to hold their newspaper in one hand or, you know, looking at the internet or even worse, social media, don't do that, and their Bible in the other hand, and they think, aha, this happened, and so in the Bible, I think that murder hornets really represent this, and Jesus will be back in 25.2 weeks. Jesus is not saying that. What Jesus is saying, what he's telling us is in our hearts, in our lives, we must be ready. We must be ready for when that day comes, but it doesn't mean that we're going to know exactly when that day comes. In fact, just before this, as he's talking about the second coming in Matthew 24, 36, look at Jesus says, Jesus says to them, now concerning that day and hour, no one knows, neither the angels of heaven nor the Son, except the Father alone. So Jesus is telling them, he's saying to them here, I don't even know. I don't know. And in fact, Jesus says, I'm not, he's not worried about that. He's not concerned about that. The Father, the chief and the Trinity, because in the Trinity, we have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And there is a, a hierarchy there that, God in three parts, one person, God subjects himself to that. So only the Father knows, not even Jesus. So if Jesus doesn't know, I don't think we need to be worrying about pinpointing the timing. We need to be worrying about our hearts, our lives, and what he has us here to accomplish. That's a lot of what this parable is talking about. Because even those in Jesus' day, they'd already missed the point of his first coming. 
They didn't understand. In fact, shortly after this, we know they're going to sentence him to death, even though he's the only righteous one who has ever walked the earth. Since the fall in the garden, he's the only one. And yet, they will reject him. Though the prophets had come, as we've talked about in these parables, John the Baptist, who we talked about, telling them to repent, that the kingdom was here, that the Messiah was here. But in parable after parable, Jesus taught just in those parables in the second part of his ministry, no one gets who he is now. And they're struggling to understand because of that what it means when he comes back later. What does this mean? What is he talking about? But Jesus is telling them that they need to have spiritual growth. They need to have spiritual awareness in their lives. Some people even read this parable and try to assign different symbolism or different practice to every part of it. And I think while there is symbolism in it, and there's certainly application in it of what we should do, we have to be careful. This is a very simple parable with a very important point. It's simple and straightforward. And we're going to see four points in this parable today. The wedding, the bridesmaids, a little bit about the bridegroom and what happens when the bridegroom comes for the bridesmaids. And of course, in that we see the warning that ties all of it together as we've already started to talk about. So let's talk a little, about, a little bit about the wedding and the bridesmaids and what happens when the bridesmaids meet the bridegroom and how that really is a warning, a spiritual calling, a reminder for all of us. Now, last week, the wedding we talked about was a pretty bougie event, as the kids would say, a royal wedding. And while this is similar, this is a simple, a common wedding that all the people that heard Jesus's parable would understand. And when a wedding happened in a small village, it was the biggest thing, the biggest time of the year. I mean, just as we had the 4th of July and it was a little different this year, it's often the big thing that tells us, hey, summer is here. That's what we think about. But this was the big event you celebrated in the life of a family, but also in a village. It was a community affair. It was not like a HGTV, four weddings kind of a thing or anything like that. It was much more of a grassroots event that everybody got involved with. Your, your cousins, your extended family, your neighbors, everyone would celebrate. It was a huge thing. Just as we saw when Jesus goes to that wedding in Cana for that first miracle, it was a pretty big celebration. Everyone would come and be a part of the process. But the process, while very similar, obviously our wedding tradition comes out of that in the Judeo-Christian world. While similar, it had a different process. A lot of the same elements, but as we're going to see, the wedding had a different process. There were still vows and covenants, but they were made when the couple was betrothed to each other. That's when it happened. That significant process started when they were betrothed, there would be vows that would be made. See, first there would be an agreement. The fathers would agree that their son and daughter would marry one another. And it wasn't necessarily a cruel thing or anything like that. It was a small village. They, they knew who loved each other and who got along a little bit. It wasn't. We always, in our world, make it out like it was a horrible event. And while it wasn't arranged marriage, it didn't mean they were always horrible events. In fact, if you know other cultures, often those go very well. And so the the son and the daughter, you know, the, the dads would get together and kind of give each other that nod and they would make an agreement and then they would be betrothed. And it was a serious thing. In fact, it was so serious when those vows and covenants were made at the betrothal process 
after the, the families had agreed on that. If the husband were to die, even before the wedding took place and was consummated, the wife was still considered a widow. And if they broke it off after that, it was still considered a divorce. This helps us understand when Mary is found with child and Joseph is so torn as to what to do before Jesus is born, how that all worked. That's how serious it was. The vows were serious. And the wedding ceremony that is talked about here in this parable, like we think of a wedding ceremony, it's actually the end part. There were the three parts. First, they would have the agreement between the parties to be married. The fathers would agree on that. Then the betrothal, the engagement period, where the vows were exchanged, but yet they still were not together and living in the same home. And sometimes that betrothal period would last a year or so, while the husband would show that he was ready to take care of the wife and begin a family. He would establish his own home or even build a home, make sure that he had provided. And during this time, there was a great sense of anticipation that would build up because the couple who could very well and often very much either fell in love or were in love would be waiting for this opportunity. And so the culmination, the huge event would be the celebration, the wedding ceremony. And in Jesus's world, that often began for the average person, either they'd have a breakfast in the morning like we talked about last week, or they would kick it off at night because like we learned last week, it would, la it would last up to seven days, but the actual event where the guests would all arrive, even if they were out of town, they may not arrive till the next morning, but the whole village would kick it off the night before. And they would do that by parading throughout the village. They would have a processional. The whole village would come out. I don't know if you describe it as a first century conga line or what you would think of, but they would come out and they would have in Greek what the word here is gamos, which means festival. I mean, this was a celebration Look here at verse 1. Verse 1. At that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the groom. So in Jesus' world, this made perfect sense to them. They went out to meet the groom, and that was that processional, that celebration. And they would go throughout the entire village until they ended up at the home of the new couple or at the home of the parents, depending on where they were going to live, where the celebration would take place and it would carry on for quite some time. And we see here the word lamp that the wedding party would, would carry with them. And in fact, if you look at that in the original language, that word there is actually torches and that was usually a, a wooden pole and it was pretty high because there was a big flame on it. You didn't want to set your hair on fire. It wouldn't matter to me, but definitely to bridesmaids that would matter and get their hair all did for the wedding and then it catches on fire. That would be bad. So they would hold that up in the air, and they would walk through that and have this processional to kick off the seven-day party. And so the virgins described here were just that, young, unmarried women. Those who were in the village who were soon to be married that were friends, and in a small village, all the, all the kids knew each other, you know, that made sense to them, or in a neighborhood in a larger city, it'd be the same way. And so these bridesmaids would come out and it would be your cousins that were girls, any siblings, your, your, you know, friends, whoever it was, you'd all come out and they would lead the processional and they would wait for the groom to come out to greet them, for the bridegroom. That's what would happen. And it was a huge honor. And so they were almost dignitaries on behalf of the families 
on behalf of the village who would go out to greet the bridegroom, to, to greet the groom. It was a really, really big deal. So they had a place of honor, a place of importance. They had an important job to do. It was entrusted to them. And they were representing the honor of the families and the honor of the whole community in what they did. And so these people in the kingdom of heaven, because Jesus is saying the kingdom of heaven is like these ten virgins, these bridesmaids. Guess what? We are the bridesmaids because we are those who are a part of the kingdom of heaven. We are those who one day when Christ comes again will come out to greet him. We are those who are called as we process throughout life and time till he comes again. We are the ones who represent that kingdom of heaven that Jesus has been teaching about. Now, if you're a big tough dude like me, don't get all offended. But friends, we are all bridesmaids and we have a job. We have a responsibility as a part of the wedding party, ready and faithful to represent the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of redemption. And we have this light we hold up and we carry out into the darkness. We'll talk more about that in a minute. So like a wedding party, they're all dressed up. They all have the same torches. They're all equipped the same way. But something is different. Even on the outside, it all looks the same. We see this in verses 2 through 4. We see this. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. When the foolish took their lamps, they didn't take oil with them, weren't prepared. But the wise ones took oil in their flasks with their lamps. Now think about that for a minute. What is that talking about here? They brought their oil. They brought it with them and some of them did not. Some of them were not prepared. Now if you've ever run out of gas because you forgot to read the gas gauge, I know someone that did that and they ran out of gas and just... They called up on the phone frantically and they were calling. And of course, this is a daughter on the phone with their dad. I'm out of gas. Or no, this is, the car's broken. I don't know. And the dad says, what happened? I don't know. It just won't run. I, I, it could be this, could be that. Well, it turned out the car was out of gas. But pulling the car off the road when it came out of gas, the child had managed to pop the tire, but didn't realize that until they had driven the car all the way home. It happens. I know it happens because I was the father in that story. It happens. And it's okay. But we want to be prepared. And Jesus is letting us know that we need to have oil in our lamps or they're not going to stay lit. We need to have gas in our tanks or we're not going to get to our destination. And that's what Jesus wants his people to see today. The members of the wedding party, five of them came prepared. Five of them did not come prepared they were wise, the ones that came prepared, and the ones who were not were foolish. The word here in Greek for the foolish ones, the five that did not bring flasks of oil, it's actually the Greek word moros, from which we derive our word moron. That's where we get that word, moron. And remember, we have to be prepared in our whole self. And so what this means is this is someone who didn't stop and consider what was required to make the journey, to keep their torch lit. It's like at a wedding. I've seen this happen at weddings where a bridesmaid shows up and forgets her dress or a groomsman comes without half of their tuxedo, even though it all came packaged in the bag. It happens. Someone who comes and they're not ready to be 
in the procession. They're not ready to represent the honor and dignity of the family, of the kingdom. Remember, the bridesmaids are like the kingdom of God. And this should draw us back to last week, the guy we learned about who wanted to come into the wedding but wouldn't accept the robes of righteousness. Just as with last week, Jesus is reminding us that we have to look both inward and forward. We have to look in our hearts and we have to look at our lives in the direction that we're going, the actions, the thoughts, the words, all those things. We have to look inward and forward to understand what it means to be a Christian who is waiting for Jesus with expectation, but also with action. You see, what Jesus is calling all of us to whether we're eight weeks old or 98 years old or, or older or younger, it doesn't matter. He's calling us to a life in our hearts and in our minds, in ourselves, that wholeness, that core of us to being prepared. Forward preparation, inward preparation. The fools looked ready for the party, but they really hadn't prepared. They hadn't taken the time. They hadn't They did not get the fuel that they needed inside. They weren't ready to keep that torch lit. So first, to be inwardly prepared, we have to be inwardly changed by the grace of God. What do I mean? What I'm saying is there are many of us in the church, and this is painful to say, who look the part, who dress the part, who walk the walk and even talk the talk and might be able to quote a lot of the things in the scripture, but do they have the spirit of God, the grace of God within them? And how do we know that? Because God's grace, God's spirit, when Jesus grabs a hold of our lives, when his spirit dwells within us, we should see some change as we've been talking about. 2 Timothy 3. 2 Timothy 3, and Paul here, coincidentally, is describing the last days as he talks to Timothy. But know this, hard times will come in the last days, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, proud, demanding, or demeaning, sorry, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, without love for what is good, traitors, reckless, conceited, Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And look here at the end, how that's all summed up in verse 5. Holding to the form of godliness, but denying its power. Avoid these people. Litmus test. The world around you can be pretty ugly. And friends, right now we know it is. But yet we're called to be different and to set a different direction. All these other appetites, all these other things, while we may struggle, we're sinful beings, right? We're not perfect. We say, no, I don't want to be like that. In fact, when I see that going on, I don't want to be a part of that. I want to do, I want to live. I want to be different. I want to fill myself up with the things that are going to fuel my life, that are going to light that torch, that I will shine brightly. I want to be prepared and changed so that I will have a different life. The foolish ones, the ones that say, I'm going to look the part, I'm going to do all the things, but you know what? I'm going to kind of do my own thing. Jesus says spiritually, practically, and completely, that's that's not a way to go. In fact, you know, the word moron, that's a strong word there, but what he's saying is, 
You're like someone that has to go out and walk in the dark and don't have any fuel in your lamp. You're going to trip and fall. And sin, it hurts. It, it does more than trip us. It breaks us up. It tears our lives apart. Jesus is calling us to look inward, to be led forward by the Holy Spirit, that we would live a different life, that our lives would be changed. And this should really upset us because we know that sometimes our lives don't please God. It's like a lamp without oil, trying to walk in life a different direction than the Holy Spirit. It never, ever works. And if you've received the reality of the cross, when you do that, you know it's not going to work. It hurts and you think, oh, and you catch yourself. Even if you've messed up, God convicts you of that sin. And that's a sign that his spirit is at work in us. And that's an important thing. It's an important thing. And as a bridesmaid, as a dignitary, as one resembling the kingdom, something happens when we're either led by the Spirit or when we try to look the part and we're not. Eventually, we're going to run into Jesus. And that's what the second coming is all about. And when we run into Jesus, we're going to see that it's either going to be something that's a great celebration or a great disappointment. Because remember, we talked about this was a warning we talked about the wedding. We talked about the bridesmaids. Now we have to talk about what happens when the bridesmaids meet the, meet the bridegroom. And of course, we're the bride, we're the church friends. If you're a Christian, if you grew up in church even, you know this analogy. Who's the bridegroom? The bridegroom is Jesus Christ. Verse 5. When the groom was delayed, they all became drowsy and fell asleep. So the bridegroom's not back right when they think he's going to be. Jesus here is telling his followers, I'm not going to come back right away. You think I am, but that's not what I'm telling you. It's going to be a while and you're going to have to work on this and you're going to have to build this kingdom with the Holy Spirit until I come back again. And so Jesus says, I'm going to be with you. My spirit's going to dwell within you and you're going to be equipped, but you need that fuel to keep that torch lit. And notice here, everyone falls asleep. Not just the foolish bridesmaid, but everybody falls asleep. We all can lose our focus. We can all lose our focus on waiting for expectation for Jesus to come back. We can all do it. We all do that. And yet, at a certain point, we know when we least expect it, because Jesus said, I don't even know. No one knows the day and the hour, Jesus says, but my father. But when you least expect it, look what happens in verse 6. In the middle of the night, there was a shout, here's the groom, come out to meet him. Now they knew that that was a normal part, but the groom here was delayed. It was not normal for the groom to make them wait until midnight, but that's what happened. That's what happened. Jesus comes, as we've heard in scripture, like a thief in the night. When you least expect it, he says, he's told them time and time again, in the middle of the night at midnight when nobody's looking, no one expects a party to start at midnight. Kids, I know you think you do, but trust me, as an old person, no one wants to go to a party at midnight. You don't. No one is looking. And when the bridegroom comes, no one was awake. But those who wake up, who have been working, who have been prepared, they're ready. And the others who have just been going through the motions, don't have that spirit, have never made that life change, they're not ready. They're not ready. Then all the virgins got up in verse 7. It says they trimmed their lamps. They filled them up. They made sure they 
checked everything out. They put new batteries in the flashlight or whatever you want to think of. And the foolish ones said to the wise ones, give us some of your oil because our lamps are going out. Friends, maybe you learn the old song in church. If you're old enough like me, give me, give me oil in my lamp. Keep it burning. Give me oil in my lamp, I pray. Do you guys ever learn that song? Maybe at church camp or Bible school or something like that. If you're, if you're an old geezer like me or older, maybe you learn that one. But the idea of that is that God's saying, you got to examine your own heart. you got to look at your own life. you got to fill up your own life. You can't fill up your own life and be spiritually. It's not a matter of what you're doing or what you're thinking. And you certainly can't give it to somebody else. It's that fuel that has to be poured into you. It has to be poured into you. And Jesus is reminding us that we need to check and examine our lives. Look at this, 2 Corinthians 13, 5. Test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves, God's word tells us. Or do you yourselves not recognize that Jesus Christ is in you unless you fail the test? If you want to know if you are serious about your faith, we try to give you a litmus, a practical way Every week, but like we're talking about here, if you are thinking to yourself, is that me? Have I given my life to Christ? Do I have that spirit that's fueling me, that's directing me the way God wants me to go? If that's you, friends, then you need to make sure that's you. And if it's not, you need to pray and give your life to Jesus Christ. That's what he's calling you to do. That's what he's warning them about today. When the bridegroom meets the bridesmaids, not all of those who think they're there are going to be there. Do I have the Holy Spirit? Have I surrendered to Jesus? That's what he means when he says to look inward and forward. He wants you to examine your own heart and look at your own life in the ways that you are practically serving Jesus. <clears throat> Am I serving Jesus? Am I taking time to minister to others? In our church this year, servant is the theme. Have you been serving people in the midst of this crisis or has the fear and the noise made you dry in? Because, friends, whatever you want to think about the practical ramifications of what's happening, Satan loves it when we stop loving and serving and sharing, when we don't shine that light in the darkness. Look at verses 9 and 10. The wise ones answered, No, there won't be enough for us and for you. Go instead to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. When they had gone to buy some, the groom arrived, and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. Now, friends, in this we see the culmination of all we talked about. What happens when the bridesmaids meet the bridegroom? Some who talk the talk and walk the walk in some ways, but really didn't have that change. They really weren't going the same direction when nobody was looking. They were doing their own thing. And there were people in the church like that, people like Judas and people like Ananias and Sapphira, those who said they were going to be a part of it, and they weren't. They weren't. Their hearts were never changed. And they discovered the cost of that. Look at the cost in verse 10. The door was shut. Just like we see last week, there's a, a wide and a narrow gate, and eventually one's going to be closed. And that's what we see here at the end of the passage. We see at the end of the passage, look here, verses 11 and 12. Later, the rest of the virgins also came and said, Master, Master, open up for us. He replied, truly, I tell you, I don't know you. You've heard this before. 
You've heard this before. While the return of Christ will be wonderful, it'll be a jubilant celebration, it'll be incredible for those who have received him, who have been called as his own. It will mean judgment and loss and destruction for everyone else. And friends, our calling as the bridesmaids who will one day stand before the bridegroom, the warning is that those who are called must make sure that they have given everything to the bridegroom, to Christ. That's who they've come to honor. That's who they've searched out in the night. That's who they've come to dignify, to glorify, to worship, to magnify. It sounds a little strange to us, but they are there to lift up the bridegroom because he's the one that makes the wedding celebration happen. Friends, are you and I spiritually prepared? Jesus is telling these parables and he's reminding us of our calling to share Christ, not just in what we look like, but in the depths of our being and who we are, because there will come a day when it will be too late to receive that gift. And that gift, you don't have to go out and buy your own oil. You don't buy your salvation. It's a free gift. And Christ is saying, you don't even see what I'm here doing the first time. I'm buying the oil for your lamps and you don't even know that you need to bring it with you. You don't even want to receive the spiritual redemption, but you're going to need it because a day is going to come. And it's going to come when we least expect it. Look at verse 13. That's where he leaves it. Therefore, be alert because you don't know either the day or the hour. Search inwardly. Search in your life and look forward to that day with expectation. But friends, be prepared. That's what Christ is calling us to do, to examine our lives, that we would live as examples, that we would live in our actions as those who are serving Christ, who are seeking him out, who are shining brightly in the darkness. Friends, that's our calling as the church of Jesus Christ. If you don't know Jesus today, it's as simple as this. You say, God, I, I'm out in the dark and I feel like my light's gone out. I don't even know where I am. And just give him your life and ask him to become your Savior and Lord as we close even in prayer today. And if you've been walking your own way and that Holy Spirit's been convicting you and you've pushed that out as far as you have and you've been trying to fill your life with every other thing, Jesus is calling you back. He's saying, no, only what I pour into you will shine brightly. Only what I give you will make you that dignitary, that you're the one who represents my kingdom, that calls other people to come and join the celebration till we someday get to the doors of that heavenly mansion where we will all be reunited with Jesus Christ when we are united with our Savior one day. Friends, our calling is to live that out, to be prepared, to look inward and to look forward until he comes again. Let's pray. God, we want others to be in the party too. We don't want to all be just about us. That's not what we want it to be at all. So we pray that you would, Lord, change us in every way to belong more completely to you. God, transform us, use us, and bring us in that we would know what it means to be your servants, to be those prepared and ready for that great day of celebration. God, we know it'll come when we least expect it. In the midst of all that distracts us, quiet our hearts, Lord, fill our lives. If there's anyone today that hasn't given their life to you, if they're even praying now and saying, Jesus, I need you to fill me up, all this other stuff, I... I just need you in the midst of all of this. 
We want to be those, God, who are found prepared and ready with our light shining brightly in the darkness. When you come again with a shout on that great day, when you celebrate, when the heaven and earth will pass away and new world will come. God, that we will be reunited, that we'll have new life, eternal life, and that all those that we reach around us will be there to celebrate and be a part of the party with us. We pray for that day. We look for that day with celebration, with expectation. Come, Lord Jesus, is what we pray. For it's in Christ's name that we do pray. Amen.